Welcome to The Crossing. Welcome to those of you that are watching at The Six. And we are just so thrilled to have you here. So much energy and such a great day and just some incredible things going on. Earlier this morning, we had a preview service for our Southeast campus here on our campus as that team continues to gather together and to plan for their launch in January and February. And we're still looking for people. So if you are interested in the Southeast campus, make sure that you do that. Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series. Um, It's going to be an exciting couple weeks. I don't know about you, but I have started to feel the effects of aging. I know some of you don't age. That's cool. That's great. Some of us do. There are always those signs that begin to happen, right? Like some of you, you just feel like you've lost a step. That's not me, right? I'm fast. Um, Some of you, uh, you're losing hair. That is me. Some of you are growing hair in odd places. And so that's an indicator of, of, of age coming on. For me, one of the key things that started to decline just a few years ago, and I remember when it started to happen, I was actually traveling and I was in another city and I was navigating and I was driving at night and I started to realize that I was doing this all the time. Like I, I couldn't see the street signs and the darker it got, I couldn't see where I was going. And so I would squint and for months and months I would just squint. And so I would look at the TV and I would just squint and all of that. And finally, my wife told me, you got to do something about it. So I, so I went, I got my eyes checked, check this out. Right? Now some of you, I know, see, like some of, you, I'm, some of you, I've never even seen you before. I'm like, wow, you are so ugly. Like I never even, I, I never knew. And, and I know these glasses make me look hip and hot and intellectual. I get it. I understand. But I don't wear them. The reason you don't see me is because I don't wear them very often because I, I have that thing where when I wear them, I can see clearly from a distance, but I can't see anything up close. So like if I'm sitting at home, I will put them on and I will watch TV and I will hold my iPhone and I will look down like my grandfather down like this and sometimes I'll do this which is really lame and and so I end up just taking them off and putting them on all the time because I can't find the and I know there's like bifocals don't don't even come talk to me about that right I'm not doing that okay and so I just I wear them and most of the time I just squint that's what I do I just do this or I just pretend I can see and I can't at all so if you're ever driving near me at night and I'm not wearing my glasses move away quickly get away all right well we're kicking off this series for the next three weeks where we're going to be talking about that exact thing and that exact idea about focus and being able to see our lives for truly what they are here's the main idea behind this whole series is how you and I see the world and live through the lens of what we know about God and our relationship with God. And the frame, you like how I did that? The frame, see that? And the frame through which we are going to view this entire question is the life of Joseph. And his story we find prominently in the very first book of our Bible in Genesis. So if you want to take a moment right now, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there all the way to the first few pages, Genesis 37. Or if you have version or the Crossing app, you can grab it. Now, I want to warn you, I'm not going to get there for a few minutes because we've got some foundational things and that I want to talk to you about before we do that. Some foundational corrective work that we need to do so that we can see through the lens, through that lens, the life of Joseph and hopefully see our own lives. And I want to start with establishing a lens of our perspective, our perspective. One of the things that's going to be confirmed in the story of Joseph is that human beings are complex. You're sitting next to a complex individual today. I know it. Human beings are very complex, and God created us that way. We have a mind, 
And Jesus said very clearly that we are to love God with all of our mind, but we're also supposed to love God with all of our heart. And sometimes the problem is not what's going on in our head. Sometimes the the problem is what's going on in our heart, what we actually feel. You might believe in God in your head, and some of you may be sitting in here today and you're saying, well, I'm still actually trying to get over that hurdle, and that's cool. I'm glad you're here. So some of us, we believe in God in our head. Some of us, you know, we're convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. We might be sitting here and we're convinced that the Bible is actually reliable. But even though all of those things are clear to us, in your heart, there are things that are still really blurry. And when you look at your life, it's tough to get it in focus. Things are really blurry and the future is not exactly clear. Because of that, a lot of us are losing hope. Losing hope. Did you know that even as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, we can lose hope? And some of you, you've not yet decided to be a follower of Christ or become a Christian because you're actually struggling with hope. I read someone, their status on Facebook this week. They actually said this. Who said, I struggle with a God who allowed my husband to leave me, be a jerk to our children, and left me feeling sad, lonely, overworked, and hopeless. And many of you resonate with those words right now. As you look through the lens of your present circumstance, you would say this. I would love to believe in a God that is good. I would love to believe in the God that we talk about all the time around here at the crossing that is sovereign. I would love to believe in a God who loves me, but I just can't feel it. I just can't feel it. And so because of that, I am losing hope. All of us have lived through a season of our life where we didn't feel a lot of hope. You might say it this way. Sometimes our problems seem bigger than God's promises. You're sitting here today and the problems that you left outside, the problems that you faced this afternoon, and man, the big, huge problems that you face going forward throughout this week, you, when you hear about God's promises, you, you want to grab it, and maybe even intellectually you believe it, but in your heart you're going, my problems seem so much bigger than the promises that God is telling me I can believe in. And so you come to church, you watch online, And somebody gets up, the preacher gets up, the pastor gets up, Shane gets up, Lee gets up, and you hear about all of these promises, and you just want to say, that's great for you, because you're like a God dude. You're like a Jesus dude, right? And like you've got some kind of special connection, and so your life's cool, and you get to connect with God, and you don't even know what it's like to be me. You don't understand my problems, and you're right. I got my own problems, and I don't understand what it is to be you. But at different times in my life, I've thought the same exact thing. My problems, God, my problems are bigger than the size of your promises. And here's the truth. I think this may be true. Some of us, the challenge is that we are actually looking and pursuing happiness instead of hope. We're looking for happiness instead of hope. A lot of us struggle with the formula we have been told that produces happiness in our life. I mean, The Declaration of Independence says this country was formed in a way because we feel like we're entitled to life, liberty, and what? Happiness. 
If you ask parents, what do you want your kids to be? And what do you want for your kids? A lot of parents say, I just want my kid to be happy. I'm not sure that's a great goal for our kids, but we would say that. You want to get married because you want to be happy. You want to settle down because you want to be happy. You want to buy a house because you want to be happy. You want the cowboys to lose because you want to be happy. You, you just whatever, right? We just all want to be happy. And we've created this formula for happiness. And the formula for happiness looks something like this. Good circumstance equals good feelings. So, in other words, if my circumstances are good, like, you know, money's flowing, kids are excelling, job is solid. If my circumstances are good, then I'm going to have a good feeling and everything's going to be okay. But when the circumstances start to shift or change, all of a sudden, all of that feeling starts to evaporate. And then we're being told day after day in our culture, every time you turn on the TV or every time you flip open your laptop and you're hit with someone trying to sell us something that's right in this formula. They're saying whatever this is that they, they want to give you or sell you will improve your circumstances. If you just get this, it'll improve your circumstances. And then if your circumstances are better, you're going to be happy and you're going to have that good feeling inside. Fortunately for us, I think fortunately for us, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about happiness. So if you're sitting here today and you've always thought, God doesn't want to be happy, you may be right. I may be confirming that feeling. Because I'm not convinced that God's goal for your life is just merely happiness. Because happiness based on our circumstance is a flawed formula. And everything the world teaches using this formula is missing God. The Bible doesn't have a formula for happiness. Instead, it has a promise of hope. The Bible doesn't have some formula for happiness. It has a promise for hope. And the promise of hope deals with our feelings in such a way that the pursuit of happiness never can. And more accurately, the formula for hope looks like this. If we have a great God... It equals great hope. Hold that there, Jake. In other words, we have a great God. And we believe that we have that through Jesus Christ. Then if we have that, we have great hope. So the world tells us if you have great circumstances, then you can have a great feeling. But we know, we trust that we have a great God. And so we should be able to operate with a great hope independent of our circumstances. In fact, happiness depends on circumstances, but hope transcends our circumstances. It doesn't matter where you find yourself today, good, bad, or otherwise, we have hope in a great God. And today, especially, I mean, honestly, based on the events of the last week, we have a room, because we're a come-as-you-are environment, we have a room that are filled with people that are reacting to the political swirl around us. Some of you are in here, and you are hopeful. You're full of hope right now. And others of you, you're on the other end of the spectrum, and you feel very hopeless today. But we have a great God. We have a great God. And Joseph's story is going to unpack this in real time for us. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take us a little deeper into this. So let me introduce you to Joseph. And it's difficult to do his story justice in the short amount of time that we have. So I'm going to use pictures. Every great story has pictures, right? All right. So we're going to use some visual. Now, Joseph, you, you may be familiar somewhat with his story, but he was actually the son 
of Jacob and Rebekah. Remember Jacob, he was the, the one who was always fighting his brother Esau. He was named Jacob because his name meant deceiver. And at one point, he basically stole Esau, his brother's birthright. Right? And he ended up having 12 sons, but the family, somewhat based on Jacob's deception and kind of the foundation that was there, was always very dysfunctional. Was always very dysfunctional. But he loved Joseph. Joseph was his favorite son. And it tells us in Genesis 37, it says that Jacob loved Joseph so much that he was like the prince of the household, right? You're familiar with the coat of many colors, right? Jacob loved Joseph so much that he really favored him and just gave him a coat so that he would stand out from all the other brothers. Let me tell you how that went down and how well that was received. It says this, chapter 37, it says, Now Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they were pumped out of their mind. That's not what it says. It says they hated him. All right, And they could not speak a kind word to him. Some of you are sitting here today and you grew up in a home where you were not the favored child. Some of you are sitting here today and you grew up in a home where you were. Because if you, if you feel like I was fine, then you were that child. All right, If everything was great, you were the favored child. Right? And these brothers were not very happy because Joseph's strutting around with this coat. And then it gets worse. Verse 5, it says, Joseph had a dream. Now, we love Joseph, right? Great, great character. But he, he had to be a little oblivious. He's a young guy, right? So he's walking around with this beautiful bathrobe on all the time. His brothers hate him. And then he has a dream, and he doesn't just keep it to himself. He lacks a filter. He's obnoxious at some level, all right? And so not only does he have this dream, but he feels like he needs to share it. And so it says that he told it to his brothers, and they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, that's awesome. No, they said, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. They're jealous. They're ticked off. And jealousy is a cancer that begins to blind them. And this young, favored, obnoxious dreamer lacks the appropriate filter, and that was Joseph. And so one day, this prince is lounging around on the couch, and his brothers are off watching the flocks. And so his father Jacob says to him, you need to go and check on your brothers. They're in an area called Shechem, which is about 50 miles away from where he was. Because the brothers were kind of renowned for getting into trouble. And so he sent Joseph to go there. And so Joseph goes there. He walks the 50 miles. He gets to Shechem. He meets a stranger who says, your brothers are no longer here. They've, they've gone to Dothan. So he goes to Dothan, which is another 20 miles. So he's now 70 miles away from his home. And he's still wearing the robe. Right? I mean, who does that? 70-mile walk through the desert, and he's wearing this robe. And when he gets there, he's, he's a little ways off. His brothers see him coming because he's so bright. And they devise a plan. It says in verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, 
They stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into a cistern, like a well. And the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat their meals. In other words, they saw him, they took his robe, they ripped it off of him, they threw him down in the well, and then they ate Jimmy John's for lunch. It's like, he's our brother, he's in the well, let's eat. This kind of gives you a picture, it's funny, but it kind of gives you a picture of the relationship. And how broken it really was. And as they were eating, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt, which was a a huge industrial capital in that day. And so Judah said to his brothers, says, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's just sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. In other words, this might make us feel a little bit better. If we don't kill him, we'll just sell him off. He is our brother, by the way, our own flesh and blood. And so his brothers said, sounds like a plan. They agreed. And so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph, except for Reuben. Reuben, the oldest brother, was gone during this time. And his plan was to come back and save Joseph. He's gone. And while he's gone, they sell him. They sell him. It says they pulled him up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And then they took his coat, and the story tells us that they took animal blood and they put it all over the coat, and they went back to Jacob, and they said, we're so sorry, your favorite son Joseph has been killed by a wild animal. All we have is his coat. And so we have Jacob, who's now grieving. He's pretty hopeless. His circumstances aren't great. He doesn't feel good. We have the brothers, we hope, at least Reuben, who now are guilt-ridden because of what they've done to their brother. And we have Joseph, who's just plain gone. And I know we, again, we like to paint this picture of Joseph as this, you know, biblical character, man of God. But you got to remember, this is a young kid, barely maybe out of his teens, who's been ripped out of his home. He has no idea where he's going. He has no idea what his fate is going to be. And so he's got to be wondering, is there any hope? His hope bucket has got to be coming pretty empty. But when he arrives in Egypt, something pretty cool happens. Because he doesn't end up off just slaving in the fields or under hard labor. It says in, verse, in chapter 39, when Joseph was taken down to Egypt, Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, he's the captain of the guard. So he's part of the palace guard. He's a really high-ranking official in the government. He, he's a very important guy. He buys Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And then it says this. Catch this. The Lord was what? with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master when the master saw that the Lord was with him okay and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did Joseph found favor in his eyes and he became his attendant basically his right-hand man and Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned What seemed to be a tough spot became an opportunity. And one thing you'll notice that even though Joseph is in Egypt, what does it say over and over again? The Lord was with him. That his circumstances may or may not have given him a great feeling, but he had a great God who gave him great hope. And so he's got this moment of authority and responsibility, but unfortunately the circumstances were short-lived because Potiphar had a wife. And she took a liking to Joseph. She was obsessed with Joseph. Like she wanted to get jiggy with Joseph. All right? 
You just interpret that however you want. All right, I'll let you. So she would chase him around all day long, and he would keep saying, no, 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 I could never do that. No, 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 I'm, I'm loyal to my master. And he kept putting her off, putting her off, and she was persistent. And one day, finally, they were there by themselves, and she comes up, and she grabs, she literally grabs Joseph, like grabs him. And he takes his coat, and he lets go of his coat, and she rips his coat off. Isn't that interesting? His coat, again. She rips his coat off, and he takes off, and she's left holding his coat. And what you don't want is a woman obsessed who now becomes a woman scorned. So now she's holding the coat, and she's angry, and she goes to Potiphar. And she's basically going to blow up Joseph's world. She tells Potiphar, this Israelite slave tried to have his way with me. So it says in verse 20 that Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Not great circumstances, probably not a great feeling. But while Joseph was there in prison, what? The Lord was with him. There's a little theme here. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge, here we go again, of all those that were held in the prison. And he was responsible for all that was done there. They're making license plates. Joseph's in charge. That's what's going on. And the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because what? The Lord, you're getting it. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Even in these circumstances, Joseph carried himself well. He emerged as a leader and someone who could be trusted. And God was with him from being a prince of his home to being in the pit and rejected to being elevated into the palace and into power to back into prison. His circumstances are changing, but he's got a great God. And so because he has a great God, he has great hope. It's great hope. While he's in prison... He has friends. Two guys who had held prominent positions just like Joseph and had fallen out of favor and been put in prison. The king's cupbearer and the king's baker. And they were dreamers as well. And so it says in chapter 40 that after they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, they had a dream the same night. They both had a dream, and each dream had a meaning of its own because they believe in those times it's true that many things that we dream, it's not just like what I ate the night before, that these dreams they had were actually God's way of speaking to them. And so when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they responded, but there was no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And in that moment, Joseph became a prophet. We don't always think of a prophet in this way, but a prophet simply is this. Someone who has the voice of God who can see things and knows things that God could only tell them and communicates them to others. So we meet prophets throughout the Old Testament. But in this case, Joseph was a prophet in interpreting the dreams of these individuals. And here's the basic in, in the interpretation. One was going to end well. He said to the cupbearer, he said, listen, you're going to be restored to your old position. You're going to be back in favor. And then he looks at the baker, poor guy, right, like cake boss, like, hey, dude, like, it's not going to end well for you. You're going to be beheaded. Have a nice day. But Joseph, because God was with him, God was speaking through him to be able to interpret this. 
And Joseph's prediction came true exactly as he had said. Verse 20 of chapter 40, it says, Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of the officials. In other words, he brought them in before the party, and he restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hands. Boom. But he impaled, ouch, the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them is his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So when Joseph had finished interpreting the dream, one of the things he said is, listen, when you're restored to a place of authority and power, remember me. Like, get me out of here. Like, put in the good word. And the cupbearer gets back, and he's so excited, and he's celebrating. His, he's out of prison that he completely forgets about Joseph. So Joseph has done this amazing thing. Everything that he has said has come to pass, and yet there he is in prison, and his life is on pause. I wonder if Joseph had a good feeling at that moment. I wonder if he just said, oh, God, you're so great. No. Let's be honest. We're complex people. Our faith is complex, and I bet Joseph had those key moments where he began to doubt. But ultimately, he had a great God who gave him great hope. He had a dream that God gave him back in the beginning. And so despite the roller coaster of the circumstances that Joseph found himself in, when he got to that place where he was stuck in prison and his life was on pause, the only thing he had was the fact that he knew that the Lord was with him and that his great God gave him great hope. At each of these moments when circumstances are good, God is with him. At each of these moments when circumstances aren't so good, guess what? God is with him. So what about your life? What about it? What about your problems? You got big problems. What about your hope bucket? Is it full? Are you hopeful? Are you hopeless today? Where do you see yourself currently? If you looked at this and you just go, man, I, don't, I feel like I'm in the pits. I bet a lot of you, I'm just guessing, I bet a lot of you look to the end of the line down here and go, that's really, if I was honest, where I feel like I'm sitting kind of stuck, man. I'm not sure what God's doing with me. I'm not sure what he wants to do with me. All of those things. Here's the question I want you to struggle with and, and answer. And it comes actually from the Apostle Paul hundreds of years after the life of Joseph. And he writes and asks this question to Christians living in Rome. And like Joseph, their lives were not easy. They were under a lot of persecution, a lot of pressure, a lot of political pressure. And, and so in the midst of their problems, he gives them this ultimate hope in the form of this question. Here's what the question is. Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Okay, that's the question. What circumstances will cut you off from the love of Christ? What going on in your life? What things, what scenarios? What will separate you? From the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. And then he answers with one word. No. Nothing. Nothing. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So let me make sure you get this today. If you are a follower of Christ, who can separate you? What can separate you from God's love? Answer with me. Nothing. Nothing. But it seems like there's always something, right? There's always something. Some of you, you're in here today and you barely made it in. Like, whew, I'm in. 
and you're struggling with hopelessness, and if you had to answer that question, what could separate you would say, Lee, I think maybe I've made too many mistakes in my life. And so I've made so many mistakes that despite the life of Joseph and despite what Paul says, that separates me from God. Or you say, I've blown it too often. I've made too many promises I haven't delivered on. That's got to separate me from the love of God. I feel like a failure. I don't think I measure up. That's got to separate me. I am the problem in my marriage. I'm the problem as a parent. I'm a problem at work. That's got to separate me from God's love. And you know what, Lee, if I was better and if God, God would love me more and I would have more joy and I would have more hope, but until I get it all figured out, God is going to remain separate from me. It has to be that way because look at my circumstances. My circumstances are not good, so my feeling is not good. And so I am hopeless and God cannot love me. And you may be tempted to think I'm an asterisk. Yeah, nothing can separate 99.9% of the world, but... I'm the exception. I'm the exception. That's not the voice of God. If you think that way, you have blurry vision. You're not following the truth and you don't understand God. Your circumstances right now today are not a reflection of how God feels about you. Despite how you feel or what the optics may tell you, the answer to the question of what can separate you from God's love is always the same as Joseph's life. Nothing. Nothing. You see yourself maybe in Joseph's story. Maybe you see yourself as Jacob, the father. You, you've lost something or someone in your life and you're losing hope. But nothing can separate you from God's love. You see yourself as Reuben, the older brother. You did something terrible in your life and you're losing hope. But nothing can separate you. Or maybe you're just plain Joseph. You've been betrayed not once, not twice, many times. And you're starting to lose hope. But nothing, nothing can separate you from God's love. Joseph was convinced. The apostle Paul was convinced. Here's the rest of Paul's words in Romans 8. He says this. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, you getting it here, nor any powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You got it? So if you have a great God, you can have great hope. If your circumstances aren't awesome, it doesn't mean that God is not with you. Way back at the beginning of the year, in the midst of a series we were doing, many of you were here and you heard the story of Jordan and Danielle Connell. They were so bold, this young couple, to let us... Um, inside their own tragedy in their life and to actually come out on stage and, and share some of their experience because they had had a, a beautiful young son named Carson. And very quickly after he was born, he was diagnosed with some very severe liver issues. And though they fought and he fought for a number of months, he eventually passed away. And as a young couple facing that, not great circumstances. They were so bold to come and share on our stage what God was teaching them in the midst of that and what God was doing in them. And even when they felt like there was no hope, they knew in their hearts that there was. And even when they felt separated, maybe from the love of God, they knew that nothing could separate them. These folks are in my small group. They're just an awesome couple. On Friday, I got this picture. This is about 10 months after they stood on our stage. And this is our newborn baby. And what an incredible, this is Navy, beautiful little girl. What an incredible example 
of a great God who gives us great hope. Now, let me be clear. The circumstance with Carson they would, they, they, was terrible. That's, this, this does not change that, right? They, they, they still mourn that. They still feel that. But now they really see that nothing can separate them from the love of God. Because it's not their circumstances that give them hope. It's our great God. So I want you to write this down. Because I don't know what lens you're looking at today. But I want you to think about this. Write this on your neighbor's arm so you'll remember your spouse's arm. Here's, here's what it is. Where are you looking today? Because if, 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 if you have regrets and you're lost in your regrets, you're looking backwards. Stop. Because it will separate you from the love of God. If, you're, if you have anxiety, you're looking around. You're looking at what's going on and it's giving you anxiety. But if you have hope, you're looking forward. And we have a great God who gives us hope. Listen, this past week we had an election. It was crazy and all kinds of rhetoric on both sides. Let me, let me just speak to that for just a moment as a church. We are a come-as-you-are environment. So as you're sitting here today, you would be shocked at the positions and at the thoughts and at the, the, the feelings that people throughout this room have. We are, we are diverse in all ways here at the crossing, and we love that and we embrace that. And for some of you, this is a difficult time. For some of you, you're, 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 you're excited about what the future may hold. Wherever you land on that, let me just give you some caution. We have a great God. He gives us great hope, right? Jesus said that our agenda is not of this world. So if you're putting your trust and your hope in a candidate, in a political party, in a governmental policy, or in something like that, I feel bad for you. Because eventually they will fail you. They will not be with you. They will not give you hope. But our God supersedes all of that. No matter where you fall in the spectrum. So let me caution you. Let me caution you as a church today. Some of you are celebrating. Celebrate with restraint. Some of you are discouraged, disappointed. Keep that in balance. The world is not coming to an end today. And choose your words carefully. You have an opportunity. And I'm shocked and saddened, frankly, by the words that are being exchanged by people who proclaim themselves to be followers of Christ. I'm not speaking to any position. I'm speaking to clearly our words. That we have an opportunity to choose words of hope that we can share with whomever, whatever position they take. Because our agenda is not an earthly agenda. It's not of this world. Our agenda is, a, is an agenda that presses forward in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God has a different agenda than we do. We should be involved. We should participate. We should care about these things. But ultimately, God is in control. And he is with us. And that's where our hope should always lie. Today, if you're sitting in here and you don't feel that, I get it. You're like, Leah, I want to believe it, but I don't feel it. Do this for me. Believe it and live it until you feel it. Be obedient. Be filled with hope until you feel it. And I believe God will meet you in that spot. All right? Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, you are our hope today. And even as we live in times that can be confusing to us, God, we ask that we would not be confused as a people. 
God, that we would lean further into you and harder into you in all that we are and all that we do. I pray for those in this room, God, that are at a place of hopelessness, that you would fill it, refill them, reframe them. Give them a perspective that looks not into the past or not into the present, but looks forward into a future that you would want to lead and guide them into. God, we're trusting you today. We lean into you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.